Well, this morning, uh, I've had this for a couple of days, I maybe two or three days, I've had uh, this psalm, it's been on my heart, and God used it, like I said, two or three days ago, just to, to counsel me and to just to build me up. You know, because I think I know that when God builds us up, He's building us up on the fact that He is glorified. That's how He's building us up. And when He does that, when He we get built up in His glory about who we are in Christ in Colossians 1 27, we be we just become so extremely blessed. And we have such incredible peace because that's what we have. That's what we have with God in Christ. The Father has peace because of what his Son has accomplished. And so we have him as our peace in Ephesians 2 and verse 14. But we also have not only the peace of God that he experiences with his Son, but we have the God of peace himself as our Father in John 20 and verse 17. And He's the one. He is leading us through this worldly wilderness, evil world system, but He's leading us right through, right through. And we posted this. God had had His counsel to be posted uh, on one of the posts. And really, the truth for us is, is that He goes before us in every single thing, every single thing that we face, he's already gone before us, and now he goes with us. He did all of that through his son. So he goes, he goes before us in Psalm 68 and verse 7. I love the Psalms because God will use those for us to be so comforted as we go through this, uh, this world system as strangers and pilgrims. And when it says that in 1 Peter 2 and verse 11, when it says that, it simply means in John 10, in those first 14 verses, we only hear one voice, the voice of him and, and his son by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we don't hear a stranger's voice, a stranger's voice of fear doubt, worry. We don't hear that because we know, again, that he guides us constantly. Psalm uh, 23 and verse 2. Also, it says in Psalm 48 and verse 14, he will be our guide until our, until our death. Now, for us, that simply means this, that death is already, we've already been delivered from death. And so in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1, a good name is as a precious ointment. Name there speaks of what Christ, who he is in his person and what he's accomplished to his Father and for us. So a good name, we have that new nature now in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. We have that eternal life in 1 John 5 and verse 11. We have all of that. And we have it beautifully. And so... Then, Ecclesiastes 7, 1, the rest of the verse says, and the day of one's death is better than the, the day of one's birth because obviously we were conceived in sin in our natural birth, but thank God for the new birth that we have. So that, 
that uh, old birth was Psalm 51 and, and, and verse uh, 4 and 5, verse 5. But now we have this new birth in Christ in John 3, uh, 3 through 6. But so he, he guides us, and he does that today with us, giving us the truth about who we are in Christ, and still can use the Psalms to comfort us, because Christ fulfilled all of that. And so, again, he guides us. Now, we, we have these guides. I, I, I'm speaking of myself. The majority, well, I'm just saying, the overwhelming, uh, the, the men that God has used and still uses in my life are all pastors and teachers that wouldn't take an ounce of glory for themselves. That's because they got to know Christ in the depth of his desire and his intimacy for them. And then, and so in Hebrews 13, verse 7, we learn, we learn by these particular men that, that are vessels that Christ used to give us incredible truth. But so that we wouldn't continually look to them apart from Christ, that's Hebrews 13, 7, he took them home to be with him. Not to rob us, not, not <laughs> because obviously their time was up and God knows the perfection of his time and he wanted them with him after, their, after the work that Christ was doing in and through them was done. But now we have these guides presently. We have guides. And there are other men of God. There are pastors, other men today that God still uses to edify us and to guide us, not to rule in Hebrews 13, 7, the word there, it says, you know, we're to submit ourselves to these that guide us, not rule over us. We know that based upon First Peter 5, verses 3 and 4, and 5. We're not to lord anything over them. And to lord over them simply means that once we lose the control of Christ in our life, then we seek to control others. And basically just to use them for ourselves. And, of course, we would never do that in who we are in Christ. And so he guides us. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, those guides that are living now that he's given us. And we're to submit, submit to the work of Christ in them. Not that they don't fail, not that none of us fail, because we do, but when we look to the word that Pat goes through them, we can see in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 13 that even if we abide not faithful because we're growing and we'll fail, and there's no excuse for sin, thank God, but we can simply confess it in 1 John 1, 9, but even if we abide not faithful, and that just simply means in Ephesians 1, 1, we are considered in our position to be faithful because we're positioned in Christ. That's Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. And that's not even talking about behavior and conduct again. That Ephesians 1.1 1, 1 is the equal of 1 John 1.7. We're walking in the light of the character of who we are in Christ. So he guides us. He guides us. And we see that again and how that works in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, uh, verse uh, 13. And he leads us in Psalm 23 and verse 4. He leads us in Jeremiah 50, verse 19. He leads us to proper places that have to do with our proper place in Christ with a proper image. And that's why Hebrews 12, verse 2, we're to look away from all that would distract from proper eyesight, proper image, properly 
having God's view of us in Christ. And so he leads us, he leads us in Psalm 23 and verse verse 4, to places of rest. And what is that place? That's the place where the Father is resting in Christ and what he's accomplished. And the Son who did the work is resting in the Father. And our place is resting in the Beloved in Ephesians 1, 6, which is the normal Christian life, a place of rest. Not like the the unbelievers, those that refuse to believe in Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, but the peace that God has created in us, he's created the fact that Christ is the one that finished that in Isaiah 57 and verse 19, he being our peace in Ephesians 2 and verse 14. So he leads us to places of rest and those places of rest in Psalm 23 and verse 4 are places by the waters. And we see that in Isaiah. We see that as he carries us, because we're his little ones, by the way. doesn't matter what period of growth we're in in Hebrews 2, 12 to 14. doesn't matter what, what time or place of growth we are in experientially. We're all his technia. In Galatians 3.26, we're all his little children and that he still carries. And so, but he carries us to places of rest by the waters of his word. And those waters continually instruct us. And when we, and those are the same waters that teach us that how he has to wash our feet in Ephesians 5. 26 and 27, based upon John 13, 4 through 10. We can see it. And that's the activity of his love. Having loved his own in John 13, verse 1, he loved them unto the end, and the end is where they'll face him for all eternity, where you and I will. And so his loving action, the loving action uh, of what the Father can do through the accomplishment of his Son in, in terms of our salvation, our being positioned in him, is he continues to wash our feet here. It's very humbling. It's a very humbling thing, but wouldn't you and I rather be humbled than be ashamed? It's, it's really, we have to put our dirty feet here, and he wants it in his hand, because that's the only place where it gets cleansed. And we see that in James 4 and verse 8. But we also see how the enemy comes against it in 4, 6, and seven, seven to keep us from being submitted constantly to him. Because that same water of the word that Christ is, that, that he uses to edify and build us up, is that water that also cleanses us. And even that is part, those waters of cleansing are part of that uh, loving chastisement, the first step of grace in many times. And that's in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. He chastens every son that's his, and every daughter, and that's, again, Hebrews, the 12th chapter in those 29 verses there. So we see here that he carries us as little ones close to his heart in Isaiah 40, verse 11, and he gently leads even the mother sheep. Isn't that wonderful? He'll, he'll lead, and I think that's so beautiful. The place that Jesus through what he, the, the way he lived his life on the earth and what he did, he lifted up womanhood to, the, to its proper place. He lifted up motherhood and how mothers in the home lovingly teach 
their children, not just by what they say, but by how they live and by the conversation that is taken in to those little ones that they hear in the home. And what a beautiful thing that is. But also he protects us. And it's with his staff. He protects us with his staff in Psalm 23 and verse 2. In Psalm 80 and verse 1. In Isaiah 49 and verse 10. He protects us with that staff in Psalm 23 and verse 4. It says, and the picture is there. The sheep that are his in John the 10th chapter. You see, all the different sheep of the different shepherds would be put into one pen. But each, each shepherd had a certain whistle, a certain sound, a certain tone. This is, again, 1 Corinthians 14, 6 through 11, the pipe, the certain sounds that they make. But those sheep would only listen to their particular shepherd because they knew the sound of his voice or the sound of his whistle. And that's brought out again. We see this because he whistles to us. We're like his sheep. Some don't like to be called sheep, but we're like them in ways, in the four ways that we've been instructed. We can't feed ourselves, protect ourselves, guide ourselves, and clean ourselves. <laughs> sheep don't, can't do that. And we're all the sheep in that sense of his pasture. And he said that to Israel in Psalm 95, 6, and 7. We're all his sheep. And he is doing this to us, by the way. And that's why we have to have his eyesight to lead us properly. Because if not, we go by our own eyesight and then we get, we, get, uh, we get discouraged because we look to others for them to do what only God can do and not that he doesn't use others, but we must look to him and make him to be in Psalm 62 and verse 5, our expectation and to wait for him. The best thing to do is wait for him because he never requires us to wait for him without waiting with us, never. Because he never leaves us nor forsakes us in Joshua 1, 5 and in Hebrews 13 and verse, verse 5. Because Christ is the same in our yesterdays, our todays, and for our forevers in Hebrews 13 and verse 8. So he whistles to those sheep to get their attention because they begin to get scattered in their own thoughts and not his thoughts. God's one thought is Christ, period. That's it. And thank God that we, as husbands or leaders, when we hear his voice, we hear a proper covering. The head, the covering, the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So you get the whole package. Okay, we see that, again, beautifully brought out in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. So he whistles to those sheep. He whistles to get our attention. Hear a certain sound. That's what that certain sound is speaking of. Again, in 1 Corinthians 14, 6 uh, through 11. So that we don't give in to a stranger's voice, a voice of doubt, fear, worry, and self-occupation that leads to self-preservation. And then we begin to follow him like Peter as an example, we can all be like that. Peter in Matthew 26, uh, they all forsook him in Matthew 26, 56, even those that were closest to him. But Peter in Matthew 26 and verse 58, he followed him afar off on a hill. The hill was self-preservation based upon 
self-occupation based upon thoughts that were not of their shepherd, their head for us in Christ. And so he gathers them and whistles so that they no longer begin to be scattered in their own thoughts. He also gathers them to his own heart. And when he does, he gathers them to his own intimate, loving thoughts of them. We see that again. That's why he would to store up our treasure in heaven. That's our, our place, our proper image. But, I, but it's Christ in Matthew 6, 19 to 22. We're to look away from all the distractions, all these thoughts, these scattered thoughts that get us away from him. And we're to look away from them in Hebrews 12, 2. But we're to lean constantly on his breast in John 13, verse 23, so that we live by his heartbeat. He ever lives in Hebrews 7, verse 25, making intercession for us. I wish I could see that the way that he wants us to see it this morning. That Jesus is ever living. His very heartbeat is for those of us that are his. (laughs) He ever lives and he's making intercession for us right now. We're not alone. No matter where we are, whatever our circumstance and situation, we're never alone. We never have to be lonely. And one person, one person who leans his breast on Christ is not a minority, he's a majority. Because Christ is everything in Colossians 3.11. His Father is everything in 1 Corinthians 15.28. So with the individual with Christ is a majority. We're more than conquerors in Romans 8 verse 37. We are more than conquerors. Because Jesus has already done it all. And he did it all for us. And he continues to do the truth about what he's finished through that intercession. He knows before you and I do when the enemy starts to come against us, even when we're not aware of it, instantly he's interceding for us. And even when we fall in sin, he still intercedes for us. And then while that intercession is to bring us back to a proper place where now again we just rest our head on Jesus' breast and we hear his heartbeat that says, I've, I've done it all for you. You as an individual. I am for you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm leading you through. I'm guiding you. And I'm taking you out of your own thoughts because I want you to see that my, my I want you to see in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, I know the thought that I think towards you. It's thoughts of peace and not evil. So that you experience on earth right now my settled plans that are training you to reign in my love for all eternity. Jesus is, he truly is, even still right now, always the good shepherd in John 10, 11, and 14. He's our great shepherd, meaning he's greater than anything. Greater is he, in 1 John 4 and verse 4, greater is he that is in you. He's in you, never to leave you or me or forsake us. He is in you, in you. And greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Greater is his thought of who he is in you than the thoughts that try to scatter you from him. Greater is he. In 1 John 4, 4. And this is the victory that's already overcome. This world that we're passing through. And again, in 1 Peter 2, 11, it's strangers and pilgrims on our way to our face-to-face eternal meeting with him. 
he's for us. Greater is he, because this is the victory that has already overcome the whole world and everything it tries to do against us with its lies, even our faith dependence. That's our leaning, our leaning on him, constantly leaning. No wonder John could bring him out, even through all of his failures, because God, that's what he does. He brings us through our failures and doesn't know us after them. Thank God for that. Thank you, Lord, that he doesn't know us after our shortcomings, after our struggles, after our failures, after our forgetting him. He never forgets us. He never removes his eye from the righteous in Job 36 and verse 7 because it's based upon who Christ is. And that's, his, that's God's view of us. That's his eyesight. That's how he identifies us. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. And we see it crystal clear in the clarity of the love of the Father that never changes. And he's the great shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20. He's the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, verse 4. It is his church. We are his church. We are his in Romans 5 and verse 19. Just like Israel will be his people on the earth, we are his heavenly people. And we can see the fact even for that in prophecy. Prophecy has to do with the earth. We're above it right now in our position. We're going through. But soon we'll rule and reign with him. In, in Revelations 20, 3 and 4, we'll rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. That that he was teaching those disciples how to pray in Matthew 6 and <clears throat> verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, in heaven, our position is already complete. But he will complete it for his people on earth and we'll rule and reign with him for all eternity. All eternity. We'll be with him. When, he, when we come back with him, you see that in Jude 10 and 11. You see that. We come back with him in Revelations 19, 11 to 16. And we will watch him deal with all of Israel's enemies because he's already dealt with ours. Already. But he'll deal with all. He's already dealt with all those enemies in spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18 that come against us. But he will deal with Israel's enemies on earth and we will be eyewitnesses with that, with him, because we're going to come back with him. And this is our truth. And so, again, here we see this psalm in Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is called the psalm of thanksgiving and teaching of each particular one that has experienced deliverance. Now, he's telling this to Israel. He's telling that to certain Jews that did believe in the Messiah. Their faith went forward to the cross. Our faith looks back. They may not be of the church, but they are friends of the bridegroom, just like John the Baptist was. But here, this is what it's teaching us, and I'll, I'll read it, and I'm going to read it from the Hebrew Bible here. I will bless Yahweh at all times. Why? Because he's been glorified. And he's glorified himself in Christ and glorified us in him. Already. We see that in John 17, 4 and 5. We see it even as Jesus was, was on his way to the cross, even before John 17, his high priestly prayer. That's the Lord's prayer. But we see it in John 13. 31 and 32. He's already been glorified. Already. And he's, he is the measure of our glory. 
in Colossians 1 and verse 27. Our glory is all in him, with us in him, but not us as a source. We see that in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. We have this treasure. God's very treasure that gave us his son. We have this treasure in these fragile clay jars. That the excellent, excelling power of God may not be of us. And that's what happens when we look to the vessel. We make more of the vessel. What we're going through. We make more of the vessel than the treasure that's in that fragile clay jar. Because he is that excelling sovereign high power that's above everything in us. And oh, we need to make so much more of him. And so I can bless the Lord at all times and continually let his praise be in my mouth, the content of my thinking expressed through words of praise in Hebrews 13 and verse 15, proper worship in John chapter 4 and verses 23 and 24 because in, in John 4, 22, we know who we, we, what we worship and who we worship because Jesus has brought us to that proper place and he will lead us in the worship of his Father for all eternity. That's brought out in Psalm 22 and verse 22 and brought out beautifully again in Hebrews based upon Hebrews 2, 10 and 11 and verse 12. Brought out very beautifully. And so, in Yahweh, my soul will make her boast. I will boast in him, in Psalm 44 and verse 8. My boast will be in the Lord, not my fragile, not my fragile clay jar, not what I'm going through in my physical body. And we all do, and we all need to pray for each other and love each other, encourage each other through that, yes. But we make the most of him in these fragile clay jars because we're on our way to get new ones. These new physical bodies in Philippians 3, 20 and 21 in in a beautiful way. And so when I make, when my soul makes her boast in Yahweh, it says the patient, because that's what humility is. I can always know that I'm functioning properly in humility because I'll be patient because love has created that in me. And that's the Hebrew word for humble. It's the patient The patient will hear, will continue to submit and obey. Hear thereof, and when we do, we'll be glad. I don't put him to the test. I don't tempt him. I I don't say you have to give me what I need to prove that you're for me. You already are in Romans 8.31 and Psalm 56 and verse 9. So in this sense, oh, let's magnify Yahweh. Let's do it together. Magnify Yahweh with me, with it together. I sought Yahweh continually. I sought him. I did. I sought him. We see it beautifully brought out in Jeremiah 29, 11 to 15. But I sought him. I sought him. I sought him. And he answered me. He's the answer. If you, you're searching and you're, you're wanting something from him, listen, listen. He far excels even what he can give. He's the answer. And you can trust him. No matter what. No matter what sight dictates. And the enemy will use the sight of the flesh to keep us scattered. And our thinking and confused. But oh, magnify Yahweh with me. 
And let us exalt his name, his person, and what he's accomplished together. I sought Yahweh, and he answered me. And out of all my fears did he deliver me. They were looking unto him, Hebrews 12, 2. They were looking unto him, and they were lit up with the brightness of his love, the purity of his word, and their faces. What they reflected, there was not an ounce of shame. Not an ounce of shame. But this afflicted one, and all our afflictions in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 are measured. Furthermore, in Psalm 119 and verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. How did I go astray? In the scattered thoughts of the lies of the enemy. Those lies that lead us away from love to bring in lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, in Genesis 3.6 and 1 John 2.16, to get us unoccupied with the depth and intimacy of his love and the purity of this fellowship. And so they looked unto him. They were lit up in their faces. There wasn't an ounce of shame. This afflicted one cried, cry unto him. Pour your heart out unto him. Let him be your expectation and your only expectation. Let him be mine. And let us do it together. Psalm 62, 5, my soul awaits you upon the Lord, for from him comes my expectation. Trust in him in Psalm 62 and verse 8. Trust in him when? At all times. At all times. Pour out your heart to him. Not to each other in doubt and fear and worry, but pour out your heart to him so that we don't live in the scattered thoughts of being oppressed in Psalm 62, verse 10, when Christ has done everything already for us. And again, as we begin to wrap this up this morning, they were looking unto him, they were lit up, and their faces weren't ashamed. They weren't. And this afflicted one cried, and Yahweh heard, and saved him out of all his troubles. All of them. Why? Because the angel of his presence... The angel of Yahweh, Jesus Christ himself, encamps round about them that fear him. Remember the dot? And God's the circle around you and me. And anything that touches the dot has to go through the love and wisdom of the circle that God is around us. He's hedged us. And remember what that circle is. It's a full circumference. It's like a ball all around us. Nothing can penetrate that it's not allowed for our sakes. And if it's for our sake, it's for his glory in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 15, because all things are of God, teaching us that we truly are reconciled in 518 and 19, and that we can be that to others no matter what our circumstances, situation is. We can still be his ambassadors in 520. And then all things work together for God's divine good because he's invested it in us. His very, the, the best good that he could, and that's his son. That's the book of Hebrews. He's better than anything. Anything that we go through, he's better. We're not better than anyone in him, but we certainly are better off. And so Yahweh saved him from all his troubles because the Lord, and through his intercession, is teaching us that he is the circumference around us. And, and because he, he encircles those, them that reverence him, not their troubles, not sight, 
not doubt, not circumstances, and he delivers them. And when you taste, when you taste properly, when you taste him, you can begin to see God's view that Yahweh really is good. He's goodness itself. And blessed is the man that trusts in him. Reverence Yahweh, you that are his saints, for there's no lack to them that reverence him. Young lions even lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek Yahweh do not lack any good thing. We have it all in Christ. Come now, children, and listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying through the teaching of this council in the 34th Psalm. Hearken unto me. The fear of Yahweh, the reverence of Yahweh is what I'm teaching you. That no matter what your circumstance or situation is, you can reverence him. And I can reverence him. And we can do it together and have fellowship. Whoever you are, do you desire long life? Do you? Do you love days that you can see good? Well, then we need to keep our tongue from evil. We need to stop allowing the enemy to infiltrate our experience with his scattered evil thoughts of doubting God. Romans 14, 22. Happy is the man. Of course, that man's in Christ who condemns not himself because there isn't any in him in Romans 8, verse 1. And he that doubts is damned if he eat because he's not eating of God's one thought about who they are in Christ. He that doubts is damned if he eat because he eats not of continual dependence and submission. Whatsoever is not of this type of actual dependence being reverencing him and trusting him is sin. It's sin. So keep your, your tongue, your thought life from, from evil and your lips from deceitful speaking. Depart from evil. You can see all this, what he was teaching Israel in Isaiah 1, 16 to 20. Cease, cease to do evil and do good. Receive good. Cease doing evil and start receiving good. Cease it. Cease it. Cease it. People aren't the God of your circumstances and mine. Neither are you, yourself. But God is. And you can trust him. And I can trust him with you. And so... Depart from evil and you will do good. In the meaning, you will experience it. You will seek peace and continue to pursue it because the eyes of Yahweh observe the righteous. Those that are in a right standing with him and his ears, their cry, he observes it. He has timing. And he knows right when the most glory will be revealed and our blessing as a result will be the provision because his timing it's as important as this provision. Is anything too hard for God? In Genesis 18, verse 14? No, but it will return unto you at God's set time, and you will experience life. But the face of Yahweh is against the evildoers. Thank God that's not us. To cut off their remembrance from the earth, that's never us. That's all those enemies that are against us. The former, you and I, we cry unto Yahweh, and he hears and out of all their troubles, again, he's making it clear, he delivers them. Because why? Because Yahweh is near unto them, positionally, but in their experience, when they're of a broken heart, a submitted will, they're broken. 
and he delivers such as be of a contrite heart. They're not arguing with God based upon scattered thoughts. What are you going to do? When are you going to do it? No, no, not for any of us. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. They're appointed. We're to take his, we, we share his sufferings in Philippians 1, 28 and 29. We're to share in them, not only to believe in him, but to suffer, to fill up the sufferings like Paul. He was, God was filling up the sufferings of Christ through him because that was part of it in Colossians 1 and verse 24. But not only do we suffer, and it's a result of his glory and part of, a, of eternal blessings that will be ours, but we do it for Christ, but we do it for each other and for multitudes as a witness in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6. See it very clearly in those scriptures. So again, as we begin to wrap this up so we can have a time uh, together, if need be, <clears throat> many of the afflictions are the afflictions of the righteous, but out of them all, Yahweh delivers him. He preserves, and this is Christ, and this is why, he preserves all his bones. Not a bone of his was broken. In John 19, 34. Not a bone of his was broken. And all the sacrifices, not a bone was broken because it typified Christ, what he accomplished on Christ. The other two that were on the cross, their legs were broken. His weren't. And that's, that goes into a lot that we don't have time to go into this morning. Not a bone of his, he preserves all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil will slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous will be punished. Yahweh redeems the soul of his servant, and they will not be punished who trust in him. There isn't any for us. Because he's done it. And so, behold, the eye of Yahweh, we see this even in Psalm 33 and verse 18. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is directed towards those that reverence him. And the eyes right there, we said, in 34, 16, it's the same grand thought that God wants us to get through to us in his counsel. The eyes of Yahweh are directed toward you and I, the righteous in Christ. He doesn't remove his eye from Christ. He doesn't remove his eye from us in him. He's in control. He's in control. David, this psalm, when he wrote this, David was on the run for his life. He was being pressed and hindered by Saul, who tried to kill him, throw a javelin at him, tried to kill him. Because he was under the influence of the enemy, of Satan. And he tried to kill David. And just like the enemy tries to steal, kill, and destroy our proper experience from our proper head, our proper shepherd, in John 10, 10a, and all the way down through in that particular chapter in John 10. So he fled. He took off. He fled into the land, the ter territory of the Philistines, some of their greatest enemies. We know that. David, when he fought Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, verse 47. This is what this psalm has to do with. He fled, and he, had to and he had to run from a dangerous enemy, but he ran right into the most dangerous one, the king, of, the king Achish. And we can see that. And then we see in Psalm 56, 
there's a prayer. David begins to pray and implore God to help him in the time of trouble in this period of his life. And it resembles these, these uh, Psalm 24, Psalm 51, and Psalm 32. But David's life would have been lost. He had to feign himself to be like he was beside himself. He had to do that. And then he ran into a cave, and that was the cave of Adullam, and that's 1 Samuel 22, 1 and 3. And here you and I are in the midst of all our troubles, with Christ interceding for us, but not only for us, but all those that would be gathered together in the midst of our troubles, those that were in debt and distressed and discouraged, all came around David. Do you ever wonder why he sent certain people? Yeah, because they're not relying on you any more than you're relying on yourself. <laughs> God, there's the answer. God sends who he sends. And he sent us to a place where he could send them. It's very interesting, I tell you. But he ran into the cave, and that was in the midst of the world system. This is a teaching psalm, as we said. It's didactic. That's what a pastor teacher does. He has a didactic ministry, a teaching ministry. But notice, all this has to do with the praise of that particular individual whose will was submitted to him who was the greatness of, the, of his help. And he, he was strengthened and encouraged. And then he became an encourager. You know, that's, second, that's a Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon. And you and I can put our names there. Whatever our name is, Satan has desired to put you in his sieve and to shake you violently, but Jesus is interceding. I have prayed for you that your dependence fail not. Not that you won't fail, not that I give you grace to fail, but it's grace that leads you out of it through his love that flows through that grace. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you're strengthened, when you're graced out, John 1 verse 16, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. Read Romans the fifth chapter in those 21 verses. It's grace upon grace upon grace. It's without stint in John 1 and verse 16. It's not, it doesn't stop. And so I have prayed for you that your, that your faith would not fail. And when you're strengthened, you will strengthen the brethren. You will grace them out with, and make the adjustments that my love has already prepared for you. And not only for you, but for others. And you, through my son, who's the deliverer, will deliver all those that are oppressed in Psalm 62 and verse 10. But you are to acknowledge. That's why it says in Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your mind. And stop leaning to your own understanding, your scattered thoughts. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Notice that it says acknowledge. Yet he wants you to acknowledge the greatness of his divine strength and power. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear in 2 Timothy 1.7, but of power and love and a well-disciplined mind, not scattered in our own thoughts, which are lies from the enemy that cause us to try and find a way of escape out of his love through the lusts of the flesh and find pleasures in those things. 
And we know that lust is never, never can be satisfied. It's insatiable. But his love for us never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, and it never ends any more than God can end, will ever end, who he is in the eternity that he himself, in Isaiah 57, verse 15, inhabits. We're to acknowledge it. And when we do, we become the vessels of his praise. His praise. And with our heart, our mind, in word and deed, notice 1 John 3, 18, love not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, but in word and deed to place the exalted name, nature of Christ and who he is, the nature of God and what he's accomplished through his son Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and to exalt his name as high as it really is in and of itself. And that's the reason that we can praise him because we do, don't we? God comes through in the nick of time, in Hebrews 4, we can come flying to the throne of grace to find mercy right in the nick of time. You see that? We have this great high priest. He's above everything in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. We run to him, fly to him. We don't hesitate. We come, come to him in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. We, we come to him. He delivers us. And then we experience it. And out of that comes great praise. And others hear it and learn of him. But it takes a longing for God. And sometimes it takes pains to find him and to seek him. And that takes the form of prayer. But it never does. That kind of prayer is never without, never remains without an actual answer. Never. And they're all perfects here. We see that in six verses 6 and 7. They're all perfects. Meaning it's action that's been completed in eternity that's working itself out with the results in time to bring us right back into eternity. They're perfects. Action completed and continuing to be so. The action of his love. The purity of his light through grace. And what this does is we stop here. What it does, this kind of labor, we're laboring, not in the flesh, but striving, like Paul said, I labored more abundantly in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, yet it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. It gives us proper labor to go through the pains, to go through the afflictions, never without him, but with him, with our Savior as he intercedes for us. And that striving took the form of a prayer. It didn't remain without an actual, factual answer. And that means that Hebrew word is you're being heard, and when you're heard in your reverence and, and, and taking pains to seek him, the fulfillment of an answer comes. And that they're called perfects. And the perfects there describe eternal facts that are accomplished. And what? But they didn't take place experientially until there was humility and reverence for Christ and exalting his name, his nature, his character, his essence, his work above everything. And so the psalmist expresses his own personal experience because it was based upon an experiential truth and that, but it's here expressed in historical form, meaning we have all of these, you know, when it says in Hebrews 11, 1, when it, when it, when it goes that uh, uh, faith is a substantiation of things hoped for, the evidence not seen. And we have as a certain proof, all these old people in the old covenant, how God came through 
in every single case how he came through. And that's why our faith is based upon the most certain evidence. It's not, it's not as some unfortunately would teach, that there's nothing there and God t- tells you to take a step and all of, a sudden, all of a sudden something appears. No, we're stepping on facts. We're walking with him who went ahead of us in 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. And we walk like he does in 1 John 2, 6 because we have the light and revelation of the character of who he is in us and who we are in him in 1 John 1 and verse 7. So that, even then, in Psalm 34, took a historical form. But you know what it's teaching us? Look back how bright you are, how much brighter you are in Christ. They look unto him and were lit up. They were lit up with the light of who he is. Whosoever looks unto him, and the Hebrew brings out this, with a look of intense yearning and eager for deliverance, is brightened up because they have an upward look, a vertical look, not a horizontal or a down look. They look unto him. The significance of that word to brighten up means they shine and glitter with a gracious countenance of God reflected on their face. It never comes to pass that their countenances must be covered with shame on account of disappointed hope. Hope makes not a shame in Romans 5, 5. Because our hope is guaranteed because Christ is in us in Colossians 1 and verse 27. We have this hope. And this, this will not and cannot be Shame for the believer that functions in Christ. The significance of the enemy trying to make us ashamed by his lying thoughts and projections and reasonings in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 is to make us be ashamed and fearful and scared. He wants to make us, and even the Hebrew is reddening, to make us blush in shame. But there isn't any of us in Christ. It proceeds from that blush, that shame, proceeds from a false covering and that significance of that false covering of shame on the believer is to cause them to hide like a veil over them between them and Christ. That's shame. That's what the enemy wants to bring in, to be ashamed, to blush. Instead of a lit-up countenance, a shame-covered countenance. But you know what? We already have that in opposition It's now being worked into our experience. We have a bright, bold, and free look when we look to him experientially. Now, since God delivers this psalmist and he delivers us, he turns, and turning means this. God has to do even the turning, by the way. It's the goodness of God that leads us to turn, to repent, to change our mind, to do an about-face in Romans 2.4. And that turning has to do with the fact that God does the turning. In Psalm 25 and verse 16, read that 25th Psalm. Read it all the way to the 22nd verse. It's amazing. Read Psalm 80, verse 3 and 7. In Psalm 85, 1 through 4, right through verse 14, he does the turning. He does away with a shameful face in the experience. It brings us back to a proper position and place in Christ where we're lit up. And that just not only lights us up, but all those that are around us. And now, instead of thoughts of shame 
and fear and being scared, he turns his thoughts with gratitude, praise, and thanksgiving, and prays to all the deliverances which are, lie in the past and which keep us trusting him presently. And Father, thank you so much that we don't have to have be dull and have eyes that don't see properly. We thank you and praise you so much for your precious counsel, your precious deep love for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.